0: A tourist traveling through southern Europe visited a cathedral that had a human skull on display. The tour guide told the group that it was the skull of the Apostle Paul. Amazing. That the next day, in a neighboring city, the group also entered another cathedral that also displayed a skull, again supposedly of the Apostle Paul. Well, one of the tourists, he, was, he started to complain. He said, wait a minute, something's a little fishy here. We've seen two skulls, and you say they're both of the Apostle Paul. The guide replied, that's right, the skull you saw yesterday was Paul when he was a young man, and the skull you, skull you saw today was Paul when he was older. You know, there were dozens of cities throughout Galatia and Asia and Macedonia and Greece that could have claimed a special relationship with the Apostle Paul. Paul was not a man to let grass grow under his feet. He was always on the move, sharing the gospel, starting new churches. At the end of Acts chapter 18, Paul returns to Antioch. And after a brief time of R&R, he's off again. In Acts chapter 19, we catch up with him now on his third missionary journey. Verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Now this was Paul's second visit now to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was an important city in the Roman world. Its population pushed 300,000 at the time of Paul's visit. And it was a commercial center in the wealthy region of Asia Minor. People called it the treasure chest of Asia. Yet ironically, Paul discovers that these people who, quote, had it all financially, were lacking spiritually. He says, in finding some disciples, Paul said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now remember who had just been ministering there in the town of Ephesus. We we learned about him from chapter 18, Apollos. And recall his problem. His understanding of Christianity wasn't inaccurate, it was just incomplete. At the end of chapter 18, Aquila and Priscilla had to pull him aside to explain to him the way of God more accurately. You see, Apollos was trying to fulfill the Great Commission while guilty of the Great omission. He didn't realize that the Holy Spirit not only wants to indwell us, but he also wants to empower us. This is the missing ingredient that had been replicated in his listeners. They believed in Jesus, but they knew nothing of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul said to the Ephesians, Into what then were you baptized? And so they said, Into John's baptism. Now, when Jesus told his disciples to go out into all the world and baptize, he provided us a formula by which we should baptize people into the family of God. We should baptize believers in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, if the Ephesians had been baptized as Christians, they would have at the very least heard of the Holy Spirit But rather than believer's baptism, they had been baptized into John's baptism. A show of repentance, not necessarily a show of faith. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Or literally, they were baptized as Christians. You now, sadly, you'll run into folks today who point to this verse and suggest that if you haven't been baptized with the exact verbiage, quote, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you haven't been biblically baptized. That's just not true. You see, the phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, is just another way of indicating Christian baptism. In fact, the context of this passage indicates that the baptismal formula, or the proper verbiage, had to have included the mention of the Holy Spirit. That's why I ask, how then were you baptized? Whenever whenever I baptize someone into the family of God, I always use the verbiage that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28, verse 19. I'll baptize the person in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 6. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. You see, when the Ephesians had first believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit had come to indwell their hearts. But now the Holy Spirit fills and overflows their lives. And it's not quiet. It's noisy. You know, when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, He kind of comes quietly. He works in our hearts. There's not a lot of fireworks necessarily. When I was saved, there wasn't a lot of fireworks. There wasn't a lot of uh, emotion in the moment. And yet when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, it can get noisy. It can get exciting. Ecstatic utterances occurred when Paul laid hands on these believers and they received the power of the Holy Spirit. In addition, they spoke in foreign languages, praise to God. And then they spoke in their own native tongue messages from God. You see, tongues are praise and prophecies are proclamation. Both, though, are bursts of communication. You know, like a cork popping on a bottle of champagne. You know, that's an explosion of spiritual power in our lives. Tongues is us speaking to God. Prophecy is God speaking to us. Tongues lets our spirits speak while our minds take a break. Whereas prophecy is God's bullhorn. The Spirit uses my voice in order to give volume to his whispers. When Paul laid hands on the Ephesians, the Spirit came upon them. And a sudden rush of power set off this speaking in tongues in these words of prophecy. You know, one of New Year, on New Year's Day, one New Year's Day, the Tournament of Roses parade was delayed by a float that had run out of gas. Can you imagine? Traffic jam in the Rose Parade. This was a beautifully decorated float with all kinds of an assortment of roses adorning it, but the float sputtered, and it kicked, and it eventually came to a halt. It was quickly discovered that the organizers had forgot to fill it with gas. It ran out of gas. The irony, though, is that the float was sponsored by, guess who? The Standard Oil Company. A company with vast reservoirs of petrol ran out of gas. And yet this can happen to a Christian. We have a pipeline to God's power. His name is the Holy Spirit. We should never run out of gas. That's why we need to ask continually that He fill us and that He empower us. Let the Holy Spirit come upon us and fill us and keep us in the palm of God's hand. Verse 8, And Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now this was a philosophy forum. Tyrannus had a large meeting hall that Paul would rent out in the afternoons. You see, the Greek workday was from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. And then again from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. Thus from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., in order to beat the heat, everyone broke for siesta. Imagine that. Every afternoon, Folks went home and they took a nice long nap. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? There was a saying, you'll find more people sound asleep in Ephesus at one in the afternoon than at one o'clock in the morning. You know, this passage gives us a glimpse of how hard Paul must have worked. For two years, he made tents there in Ephesus mornings and evenings, and then he forfeited his afternoon siestas to teach the Bible there at the school of Tyrannus. Ministry was Paul's passion, not just Paul's profession. I'm sure that he figured he would take his siesta when he got to heaven. And this continued for two years, Luke tells us, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, these handkerchiefs were work cloths that Paul used to wipe the sweat from his brow while he worked, his bandana, his survivor buffs, you might say. Paul's apron was a cloth that he wore in order to protect his clothes while he worked. It was a way to wipe off his hands or wipe off the sweat. Both articles soaked in Paul's perspiration. You know, I read recently where Jimi Hendrix sweatbands sold at an auction for $7,000. Some poor fellow must have thought that there was something magical about wearing the famous guitar player sweatbands. You know, he probably figured that Jimmy's sweat might still somehow be in the bands and if it trickled onto his hands he might be able to play just like Jimi Hendrix you know we hear such a theory and we think how ridiculous but this was the idea behind the Ephesians preoccupation with Paul's sweat bands and God used it to work miracles what's the big idea about apostolic perspiration I mean, it makes you think, is there anything to these healing hankies and these blessed bandanas that you see advertised by the questionable preachers on the infomercials late at night? I mean, does God resort to gimmicks? I thought for God, healing power was no sweat. Understand, Paul was human just like us. In fact, he called himself the chief of sinners. Certainly his glands didn't secrete anything supernatural. Yet God worked miracles through Paul and through these handkerchiefs and these aprons. Understand, the Ephesians so associated Paul with God's power that the thought of drawing close to the apostle, even through a sweatband or even through an apron, was what activated their faith. What happened had nothing to do with perspiration, but it had a lot to do with expectation. You see, if you believe but don't expect, do you really believe? Not really. Expectation is the trigger to faith. And in the minds of these Ephesians, God and Paul were so intricately linked together that his buff stimulated their belief. This is how it works with the laying on of hands. We practice that sometimes, or with the anointing of oil. Or the sick, or the celebration of communion, or the raising of holy hands to God in our worship, they all serve the exact same purpose. They stimulate faith. They give the believer a point of contact where he or she can release their expectation in the work of God. God used Paul's handkerchiefs and his aprons in order to create this expectation in order to trigger their faith and work miracles. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Now, when God works supernaturally, it's glorious. But it also brings some weirdos out of the woodwork. And here were several Jewish exorcists who pop up to try to take advantage of the situation. You know, I once read about a Brit named Andrew Green. This fellow fancied himself as a secular exorcist. He claimed to be a real-life ghostbuster. People hired him to expel ghosts from haunted houses. But he reminds me of one of the sons of Sceva. They got paid up front. And Luke says they were itinerant, which means they were always on the move. (laughs) That means that they didn't have to be accountable for their success or pay for their lack of success. Thus, these guys were always on the lookout for some special incantation, some formula that they could employ in their trade so that they could go in and sort of make some kind of a spectacle in order to supposedly cast out a demon. And so when they saw Paul legitimately casting out demons in the name of Jesus, they assumed that this would be their ticket to the top. And so they went and gave it a try. They said, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. But here's what happened, verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) Literally it reads, Jesus I recognize, and Paul I am acquainted with, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. (laughs) God used Paul's buffs, but these guys ended up getting beaten up and ran out in the buff. Both the sons of Sceva and Paul spoke the name of Jesus to cast out demons. The difference was that Paul had a relationship with Jesus and the Jews did not. See, the Jews saw Jesus as a spell. Paul served him as a savior. What a difference there is. You know, the power of God is conveyed through relationship, not through rite, not through ritual, not through recitation, It's by faith, not by some formula that unleashes the power of God in our lives. Using the name of Jesus without a relationship with Jesus is like using a gun that's really not loaded. I mean, these Jews ended up bruised and bloodied and beat to the buff. We're called out. We're called on to use the name of Jesus and confront satanic strongholds. But we need to be sure That when we do, we're in touch with Jesus before we invoke his name. There needs to be possession behind our professions. Well, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. What a wonderful thing. There was this public confession of sin. People were openly renouncing the evil that they had been involved in. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. In ancient times, documents that were laced with spells and curses in the occult, they were often called Ephesian letters. The region was renowned for its occult connotations. But when these people came to Jesus, they repented of their sin, and they started burning their paranormal paraphernalia, all of their occult books and their Ouija boards and so forth. We're told, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That was the equivalent of the combined yearly salaries of 150 men. I mean, when the Ephesians met Jesus, they formally renounced all of their associations with evil. Everything that they had valued before that was associated with the devil, they now viewed as garbage. They tossed out their horoscopes and their Ouija boards and their crystals and their New Age books and their tarot cards and their Harry Potter libraries, and they put them all in a bonfire. You know, they didn't take their record collections and their libraries and sell them for a profit or hold a big garage sale. No, they torched all the remnants of their past. They made a clean break with their past and they pledged to follow Jesus. You know, when I came to Jesus, I had a very expensive record and tape collection. They were eight tracks, but it still cost money and it was still a good collection. But I remember after giving my life to Jesus, I remember God convicting me about holding on to some of those those things. And, And I can remember taking them Uh, all down to the dumpster, right behind where I used to work. I used to work in a warehouse. And I remember one afternoon sitting there uh, in the trunk of my car, breaking those albums in half, ripping those album covers, tearing the tape out of the eight tracks and throwing them in the dumpster. You know, it was a big moment for me. At the time, it was a costly commitment. I had a lot of money invested. But I have no doubt now that it was a turning point in my life spiritually. As we're told here in verse 20, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Hey, that's what happened in my life. When I made that break from the past and pledged to follow Jesus, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed in me, just as it did for these folks in Ephesus. And when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit. When he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there... I must also see Rome. Boy, Paul had his sights set on the capital of the empire, but his heart still pulled toward Jerusalem. And so he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Remember, that was another way of saying Christianity. They called it the way. It was a way of life was a way to God. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. In other words, Demetrius was the union organizer for the local idol workers 101. Now you could see that Paul was cutting into their business. And he was alarmed. He wanted to rally the workers. He called a union meeting. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, Ephesus was famous for many reasons, but the temple of Diana was certainly its most famous landmark. Pagans from all over the world came to Ephesus and to this temple to worship the Greek fertility goddess Diana. This great temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was larger than the Parthenon in Athens, 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, 60 feet high. It was surrounded by 127 marble columns. The whole temple was adorned with beautiful engravings and paintings. In contrast to the beauty of the temple, the statue of Diana was ugly and grotesque. It was a squat figure made of black stone with a female face and covered front and back with mammary glands. It was a symbol of fertility. I suppose you could say that the worship of Diana was a real bust. Of course, when you came to Ephesus, it was important that you left with a little trinket in order to show your friends where you'd been. You know, a miniature replica there of Diana. And so Demetrius and the local silversmiths, they made a bundle selling these ugly little souvenirs. Idolatry was big business and the gospel was a financial threat. And take note of this. This is how you put sin out of business. Not by picketing or by protesting or by boycotting, but by spreading the gospel, changing people's lives until it cuts into the demand for that sin. In the 1901 Welsh Revival, God awakened sinners to the point where every tavern and pub on the island of Wales went belly up. And guess how many anti-alcoholic sermons were preached? None. You see, once people were touched by the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit, they no longer had any interest in distilled spirits. They put aside their booze. Hey, social reformation is useless without spiritual transformation. To really change society, you start by sharing sharing the gospel and changing the hearts of people. That's how you start. That's what happened here in Ephesus. The gospel spread, and the spreadsheet of the silversmith shrunk. Demetrius' cronies, they felt threatened, so they tried to enact some legislation to stop the church and squelch the gospel. They call a meeting to discuss the shrinking prophets and to stir up the crowd. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. Now, visit the ruins of Ephesus today, and you can enter the huge theater where this mob gathered. We're told by the archaeologists that in its heyday, this theater was able to seat 25,000 people. The union members met there, They, they rallied a crowd, they stirred them up into a frenzy, and they grabbed the first believers they could find. Happened to be two Macedonians, Gaius and Aristarchus. You know, Benjamin Franklin once said, a mob. Is a monster with heads enough, but no brains. And this was the case in Ephesus. They stirred up a mob. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. (laughs) But you got to love Paul's courage, don't you? He wanted to go. You know, he thought, wow, a stadium full of people. I can preach the gospel. To Paul, there was no such thing as opposition or obstacles, only opportunities. Verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. I mean, this was just a a hysteria. It was kind of a chaotic crowd. And so they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. Now, in the Roman world, whenever an uprising occurred, someone usually blamed it on the Jews. It's just protocol. So here the Jewish leader, Alexander, he wants to make it clear that the Jewish community in Ephesus has had nothing to do with Paul and his efforts. But Alexander's attempt to disassociate himself backfires when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Evidently, the appearance of a Jew only inflamed their pagan loyalties. Verse 35, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? The statue of Diana was black, probably because it came from a meteor." It was made from an actual meteor. And this sort of added to its allure. This is responsible for its black color. The local lore claimed it was from Zeus, chief god of the Greeks. He goes on, Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Now, apparently, Paul didn't enter Ephesus and go on an anti-Diana campaign. Paul had just preached the gospel. That's all he had done. And the light of God's word had uncovered the darkness. People were rejecting... the. Paul had said nothing about Diana. But people were rejecting Diana as a false god. I mean, when you shine the light of the gospel, it, it uncovers the lies of Satan. It uncovers the darkness of this world. He goes on, therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro let them bring charges against one another. But if, if, you have, if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. This city official brings some order finally to the frenzy. He says there are courts for legitimate legal grievances. These men have done nothing illegal. If you find a legitimate grievance, you can go before the court system and you can bring these charges. And then he warns. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. See, the city of Ephesus had some special Roman designations. It was a free city, as the Romans called it. This came with special privileges and it curtailed the authority of the Roman army within the borders of Ephesus. And so this clerk is warning the Ephesians that if they continue with this uproar, this mob, it might just give the Roman army a reason to enforce martial law and and move in. The last thing they wanted was a crackdown. So, we're told, When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Suddenly, the people decided to go home. Chapter 20. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. He set sail from Ephesus for Philippi and Thessalonica. And when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months during which time, by the way, he wrote his letter to the Romans. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria or back to Antioch, so he decided to return through Macedonia. And here's the entourage that traveled with him, Paul's posse, you might say. Sopitar of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. One of Paul's purposes for returning through Macedonia was to collect an offering for the famine-stricken church back in Jerusalem. These men listed were the people entrusted by the respective churches to transport their offering and make sure it got back to Jerusalem. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Troas was a port there on the Aegean Sea. It was 130 miles up the coast from Ephesus. They waited there for a week for a ship sailing southeast towards Syria. Verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. You think I'm long-winded. Now notice a couple of points. First, apparently the early Christians met on the first day of the week. Notice that. You know, at first glance, that might seem trivial. But think about it. For 1,500 years, the Jews had met to worship on the last day of the week, the Sabbath, Saturday. Why did the early Christians suddenly change their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, from the last day of the week to the first day of the week? There's only one reason. Church meetings were a celebration of the resurrection. Something dramatic had to have occurred to budge a ritualistic people out of their proud tradition. A transforming event that changed the day of worship was Jesus' resurrection, for Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. Second notice, the early Christians met on Sunday night rather than Sunday morning. That's interesting. In pagan Rome, Sunday was a work day, not a holiday. Believers labored all day Sunday. When the job ended, that's when they came and they met to worship. And then notice third, Paul's ship is sailing at sunrise. This is his last opportunity now to speak to these believers in Troas. And so he throws away his watch. Paul isn't worried now about getting the kids to bed or guys going to work the next day. He's this is his last time to speak to these folks. And so he's going to speak until he has nothing left to say. Boy, if he started at 6 o'clock in the evening, it means that he preached a six-hour sermon. How's that for a long sermon? Now, there's a detail about the room where Paul preached that were given in verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Understand, in the first century, Christians were a strange new minority. And as a result, all kinds of rumors circulated about the practices and beliefs of Christians. Often they were accused of sexual promiscuity since they always talked about love for one another. Communion also carried misunderstandings. People heard that the Christians were eating the body of Christ. They concluded they were cannibals. They heard that they were drinking blood. Who are these people, vampires? And all these misconceptions swirled around the Christians. You know, it reminds me of our early days Back at Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, people would drive by and they would see us on Sunday mornings and see us standing outside in blue jeans and flip-flops and t-shirts. And, and they'd roll down their windows and they'd just kind of stare at us. And then they listened listen to the rock and roll music coming out of the church. And then they saw the pastor come out and jump on his motorcycle. And they wondered, what kind of a cult is that? It was because of these suspicions at the early church, they always lit their meeting halls with an overabundance of candle power. Why? They wanted the room so bright so that if you walked by and you looked inside, you could see clearly. There were no secrets. You could see exactly what was going on. I remember in our old location, we, we had a, a big wooden door, and we eventually took out the door and we put in a, a clear glass door just so that people could look inside. They'd know that we weren't keeping any secrets. If they wanted to peek inside, they couldn't. We had nothing to hide. They could see what we were doing. Now you can get a feel, though, for the conditions in this meeting room at Troas. Understand now, it's a Sunday evening, after a tiring work day, you got a long-winded preacher Paul, there's this stuffy, smoke-filled room, all these candles burning, this meant that poor Eutychus, he didn't stand a chance. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He didn't stand a chance. In fairness to Eutychus, he probably went to the window to get some fresh air. He thought maybe the night air might wake him up. But he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Drowsiness led him to death. Eutychus' fall proved fatal. He fell three stories. He hit the dirt and died on impact. I've had people get drowsy during my sermons and fall out of a chair, but never out of a window. Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Reminds me of the fellows fell asleep in church and. The pastor shouted at the usher. He said, hey, I want you to wake up that fellow there. The usher turned around shouted back at the pastor and said, no, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. Well, Paul is a responsible preacher. If he puts you to sleep, then he's going to wake you up. And so he goes down, he falls on Eutychus' body, sort of Elisha style, and God works a miracle. We're told now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while. Even until daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive. And they were not a little comforted. (laughs) Paul raised the dead and served a meal. He went on fellowshipping until daybreak and time to leave. You know, understand, Eutychus is not the only person who's ever dozed off. We have folks in our church who get sluggish spiritually. They fall away from the Lord. They fall asleep spiritually. And what happens? They crash. And like Paul, the body of Christ needs to go to them and cover them and revive them with our warmth and our love and our compassion. We need to resuscitate them with our fellowship. It's love that awakens a cold heart and revives a slumbering spirit. Verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. Now from Troas to Asos was 25 miles. Paul could walk it about as fast as as his posse could sail it. And Paul needed some time to himself. I'm sure he wanted to spend some time with the Lord. And since he had stayed up the whole night previously, He decided to walk while he prayed. You know, have you ever had a hard time praying? You find yourself falling asleep while you're praying? Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me a lot. You know, one great way to beat that is to go for a walk. It's just to pray while you walk. Apparently, Paul hadn't slept the night before. If he'd gotten on his knees, he probably would have fallen asleep, Utica style. So what does he do? He needs to spend time with the Lord, so he decides to walk the 25 miles from Asos down the coast. And when he met, when he met us at Aesos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregillium. The next day, we came to Miletus. In other words, they were way, working their way down the Turkish coast. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost, which would have been, oh, late May or so. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, the beach at Miletus was about 28 miles south of Ephesus. If Paul had docked at Ephesus, he would have ended up being stuck there for days. Remember what was in Ephesus, a thriving church, multitudes of friends. I mean, Paul would have had to spend time there. He could have never just stiffed the crowd there in Ephesus and gotten back to sea. And so what he does is he skips past Ephesus. And from the beach there at Miletus, he sends word for the elders of the church to come to him. He has some final words for these elders. In other words, Paul hosts a leadership summit. Now understand, he meets with the elders of the church in Ephesus. The New Testament uses three names for the same person. Understand this. The word elder, the word bishop, and the word pastor are three names for the same person. Acts 20 verse 28 refers to these elders or overseers or bishops. The word bishop means overseer. And so it refers to the, same, refers to the elders as overseers or bishops. In other words, two names, one person. In these same verses, we find these men shepherding or pastoring the flock. Again, the other name. What i'm trying to say is all three names elder bishop pastor were used for the same person right here in chapter 20 of book of acts the names reflected on the nature of the same man for example elder speaks of the man's maturity bishop or overseer his ministry what does he do he oversees he supervises and pastor or shepherd refers to his method A shepherd feeds and leads the flock. Elder speaks of his maturity. Bishop, his ministry. And pastor, his method. You know, in the book of Acts, we have eight of Paul's sermons. Most of his messages are from Paul the evangelist or from Paul the apologist. But here we hear from Paul the pastor. He shares his heart. His words on the beach this day reveal his love for the flock. They should reflect the heart of everyone who calls themselves a pastor. Verse 18, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. Paul was not an ivory tower preacher. He wasn't cut off from the everyday struggles and concerns of his people. He lived among the people that he served. His ideas were lofty and heavenly, but his feet were firmly planted on the earth. He lived among them. He says, "...serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews." Everywhere he had gone, Paul had met with opposition, most often by the Jews. And notice Paul came serving the Lord with humility. I think too many pastors today, they they develop an entitlement mentality. They make a few sacrifices But then suddenly they think that God or the people owe them. Not Paul. He was a giver, not a taker. And then he reminds them how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you. Paul kept back nothing. In other words, he left it all on the field. Why save for a rainy day when today might be your last? To spend and be spent was Paul's motto. Paul's goal was to die with nothing left in the tank. And I taught you publicly, he says, and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that change and tribulations await me. Everywhere Paul traveled, he was forewarned about the trouble he faced in Jerusalem. Verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, a concern for his safety was not Paul's concern. He had one pressing priority. He had one desire, and that was to finish his race with joy, to faithfully preach the gospel of grace. He says, and indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. He knows this is his last visit now to Ephesus. Paul realizes he'll never travel this way again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And I got to tell you, This is one of my goals as a pastor. At the end of my journey on earth, I hope to be able to say what just comes out of Paul's mouth. My goal as a pastor is to be able to say to my congregation that I have not shunned to commit to you the whole counsel of God. That's why we do this on Wednesday night. That's why we go chapter by chapter and book by book through the Bible. Because I want to give you the whole counsel of God. You see, too many pastors today, they only preach part and parcel. You know, they gravitate toward their own pet subjects. But what their people really need is the whole counsel of God. It's been said, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It's true. At times I'm grieved that there's not more of an appetite for this type of teaching. But I know this is the diet that it takes to create real consistent spiritual growth. The whole counsel of God. Just learning the word. Just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book. Verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Now notice here, he tells these elders to take heed to the flock, but first they need to take heed to themselves. Too many pastors, too many elders, they burn out on ministry for the Lord because they never received ministry from the Lord. Understand, the neediest person I know is me. (laughs) It's me. If I don't feed from God's Word myself, there's no way that, that I can share it, that I can share it with others. I want to live my life as broken bread and poured out wine, but my ministry won't last very long or be very successful if I'm pouring out of an empty cup. Every minister's first priority is to take heed to himself, then to the flock of God. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. A shepherd has two duties toward his flock. He leads and he feeds. He oversees and he undergirds. And he'll be faithful to his duties if he recalls that the flock of God belongs to Jesus. It was purchased at a steep price. The church cost God his only, the blood of his only son. A man who remembers this is a man who will handle the church of God carefully and responsibly. Once a man purchased his parents a very rare, exotic, tropical bird. He paid thousands of dollars for this expensive bird and he sent it to them for their anniversary gift. After a few days, his dad called him and the guy asked him how he liked the bird. And that's when the father replied, son, it was delicious. Your mother and I ate every bite. Pastors need to remember that the sheep are not for lamb chops. They're prized livestock. The flock of God cost the sinless blood of his only son, Jesus. God loves his flock. He wants us nurtured, not slaughtered. And God also wants the flock protected. He says, for I know this. That after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You know, a faithful pastor feeds the flock, but a spiritual wolf feeds on or feeds off the flock. A spiritual predator will fleece the flock to pad his own pockets. We need to beware of these savage wolves. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up. Notice wolves come from two directions. They come from within the church and they come from without the church. You know, if the devil can't defeat a church, he'll try to join it. He'll try to sabotage it from the inside out. And he can do that just as easily as he can oppose it from the outside in. These spiritual wolves come speaking perverse things, Luke writes, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Notice this, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Here's the way to identify a spiritual wolf. Rather than create followers of Jesus, he will create his own followers. He'll draw folks after himself. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, day and night with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Boy, with spiritual predators on the prowl. Can there be any hope for the prosperity of God's flock? And I say, yes. It's God's word, Luke says, or Paul says, that builds us up and guarantees us our inheritance. Our safety's in the scriptures. It's in continuing in the word of God's grace. Verse 33, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities, and for those who were with me, Paul saying, I wasn't after anybody's money. Like in Corinth, while in Ephesus, Paul made tents during the day to support himself and, and those in his posse. He served the Ephesians without being a financial burden to them. He says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul was an example to the church. He could have demanded a salary. He was within his rights to do so. But he wanted to prove to the Ephesians that it is more blessed to give. By the way, where Paul got this quote from Jesus, we're not sure. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It doesn't appear in any of the Gospels. Apparently, Paul had another source. This particular beatitude. It's more blessed to give than to receive is often called the supreme beatitude. Verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. As Juliet said to Romeo, Parting is such sweet sorrow. And here we have an example. Paul loved these Ephesians. And the Ephesians, they loved Paul. Grown men now hug and cry. Tear trails are seen in the sands in Miletus. The elders leave encouraged and instructed. Paul sets sail with these Ephesians on his heart. And there we have chapter 20. We'll pick up in chapter 21 next time. Any questions over what we studied tonight?